husband Jody and I were even in the final hours or days of finishing this uh, of the, the our Weinstein investigation. You know, we had no idea of the impact. There was even a moment. You know, I think it was two nights before we published. We left the office. We've been working kind of around the clock, and we left the office at one o'clock in the morning and shared a cab back to Brooklyn, and turned to each other in that rare moment of kind of silence, and said, "Is is anybody going to read this story?" One of our editors said many times, "Harvey Weinstein is not that famous." <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a frequent listener, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. Each week, we are talking to one woman. We're going deep into her story. These are women across all industries who are playing at the top of their game. And we're looking beyond the resume. We're looking at the decisions along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that have shaped their careers and their lives, the tough choices that, you know what, aren't always obvious. Sometimes you have two options in life and they may both look great or they might both look bad. And these women have been there. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. It is a real honor today to have the two guests that we have with us for No Limits. Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy are Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporters at the New York Times. They are the ones who broke the news of Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual harassment and abuse. They have a new book. It just came out called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. And throughout their career, these are two women who have focused on investigations, who have won awards, who've really gone to the heart of the truth and been dogged reporters about it. And they have now shared numerous honors for breaking the Harvey Weinstein story, including a George Polk Award and along with colleagues, the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Jody and Megan, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, there's so much I want to dive into with both of you about this story, about your book, um, and in particular about your paths, because I think there are a lot of young women and men who get into journalism because they want to pursue stories like this one. And I wonder along the way, pre-Harvey Weinstein, before that idea ever crossed your path, did you feel like there was going to be an opportunity in your reporting life to make the kind of, of of impact that this story made? Well, I think that there's no question that as investigative reporters here at the Times and in my previous jobs, you know, I started off, I've worked a variety of places, including uh, I got my start in the newspaper industry in Wisconsin, working for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel before going on to the Chicago Tribune and then to Reuters News before coming to the New York Times just in 2016. And I think that every single person who gets into investigative reporting, whether they're doing it on a local level, um, I know I did I did reporting in Racine County, Wisconsin, uh, back in the day. I grew up in Minneapolis, and I definitely <laughs> saw some of those stories. Yeah, so it's you're you're getting into it with the and it, you you can start small, and but I, I there's no question that like what gets you up out of bed in the morning and and that you know what drives you into the office and making those phone calls and knocking on those doors. And, and starting to kind of learn how to pursue the, the records and documents that can help illuminate wrongdoing is a hope that you're going to have an impact. You know, you're not just, as investigative reporters, you're not just out there hoping to 
do stories that are, are interesting or fun to read. Your, your goal is to help to do stories that help bring about change. Now, that said, I don't think that there was a moment. And in fact, when Jody and I were even in the final hours or days of finishing this, uh, of the, the, our Weinstein investigation, you know, we had no idea of the impact mm-hmm. it would have. You know, we were just trying to do our jobs and, and publish the, the findings that we had gathered over the course of those many months. So there was even a moment, you know, I think it was two nights before we published, we left the office. We'd been working kind of around the clock, and we left the office at 1 o'clock in the morning and shared a cab back to Brooklyn and turned to each other in that rare moment of kind of silence and said, is, is anybody going to read this story? Because we just didn't, we just didn't, we were not thinking along those lines. Mm-hmm. We were just so focused on trying to, to, to get to the finish line and publish our findings. So one of our editors said many times, Harvey Weinstein is not that famous. <laughs> and so, yeah, you were coming up against it. That's the other factor in all of this, that you're working on stories like this one, and not everybody around you is going to think that you're working on something that's totally worthwhile. Have you, how, how have you managed that, Jody? Well, it happened with sources on the Weinstein story. We would call Hollywood executives in the summer of 2017, and they would get very luxury, and they would get kind of condescending, and they would say things like, eh, you're never going to get this story, but even if you did, they'd say, and remember, we're not entertainment reporters, so they felt like they were, I guess, kind of schooling us. They would mm. say, Jody, Megan, the casting couch, it's unfortunate, but it's just a permanent part of this business. It's, it's kind of baked into the Hollywood system. It's been there from the beginning. Nobody's been able to eradicate it. And, I mean, they were right. There was an actual statue of a casting couch uh, in Hollywood, right? You know those famous Chinese movie theaters where mm, they hold premieres? Yeah. There was a casting couch statue right near there. And so they would say, they would say, I don't think you're going to be able to publish this story. Harvey Weinstein will somehow shut it down. But then they would say, and even if you do, nobody will care. Everybody knows this happens all the time. Did you worry about that? Did, was that a, something you thought about? I think it happens so often in journalism that people tell you that your story is not yes. a story. Or they treat you like the naive one. And if you're doing it right, that will make your story stronger. Because mm-hmm. it will force you to demonstrate why people should care. I mean, there, there, maybe there was like some totally blasé way to write this news as, oh yeah, you know, sleazy Hollywood producer, treats women badly, no big deal. Um, but our job was to demonstrate to the world why this was really important and why people should care. Well, and I, it's funny when people, when sources say to me, there's nothing here, that's usually when I think there, there must be something here because you're waving me off it too harshly for, for nothing to really be happening in this case. And it's often sort of the first of two hurdles in the course of doing the investigation. The first is overcoming the, is there a there, there question? Is there something in fact to pursue? And I think that we felt like we had we had scaled that hurdle pretty quickly, that we were convinced that there was, that we were onto something substantial here, uh, you know, even if that some of the people we were talking to didn't, didn't believe it or didn't buy that. Then there was the question of, as we were able to start to document these decades of allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault by Weinstein, that didn't mean that we were in a position to publish it. So mm-hmm. then, you're, then you're looking to scale the hurdle of, like, how can you get this stuff on the record? How can you obtain the types of uh, documents and other financial records that will help 
basically, you know, get put you in a position to be able to publish. And something that you write about in She Said, and I'm emphasizing mm-hmm. she, because I like the fact that you chose that to focus on the women. It seems like one of the things that really did keep you up at night were the victims and the possible repercussions that they would be facing by by putting their stories out there and making them public. Our sources were so brave. And I think... It- we were worried about them on a number of levels. I mean, now we have a better understanding of the degree of manipulation and, intimi- and intimidation uh, that Weinstein employed. Back then, it was more this vaguer sense of, you know, what will he do to stop this story? And also, it's easy to look back at Me Too and think it was inevitable, but yes. it wasn't. And before the story was published, we did not know what reaction these women would get, and and they didn't either. In fact, they were always going to sort of, most of them had a very natural tendency to go to the worst case scenario in in their own minds. So we were very worried for our sources, and we were worried about failure. We were, as Megan said, very early on, we had, uh, we had some convincing evidence that something was really, really wrong here. And once we understood that better, we were so we were we were so worried about botching the story and somehow failing. And I mean, we had visions of having to watch the Oscars for the rest of our lives, having to keep this material about Harvey Weinstein secret. So incredible. And and I think to your point about this was not necessarily inevitable that there were a couple of days between you publishing and then really the world kind of all falling on the same side. And I remember as I was thinking about that fallout, for me, um, I almost felt like this weight was being lifted. And I don't know if you've heard this from other women, but there was this sense of, wow, we're really going to take this seriously now. And I was kind of in shock, but also smiling, not for the downfall of one individual, but this idea that there had been other reporting. You know, you had you had seen the reporting out of Fox um, about O'Reilly and Roger Ailes when the story came. And suddenly, everyone's attention was, it felt for a moment like it was all on the same page. I think that there was a significant moment for me in those days following, those days immediately following the publishing of our story, where the world, we were kind of watching to see what was going to happen and what the response might be. And there was some women and tips who were coming to us with their own stories about Weinstein. And we immediately started not only pursuing those stories, but pursuing some of the additional questions of who knew what and when, the questions of complicity, the questions of enabling, and uh, which we, we, we continued to push through in the reporting of this book. You know, we were, at that time, we had been able to connect some of the dots in that first story but we realized that it was really just the beginning. And since then, we've been able to bring together so many other pieces of the puzzle, like the the machinery that was in place to silence the women mm. and try to stop our investigation. Inside of the Weinstein Company. Yeah. And you have the and, interview and, with um, his brother. Mm-hmm. Right, his brother. Right. So so Bob Weinstein, I mean, we came out of that first story wondering, you know, one of the, the, the really pressing questions for us was, you know, this Bob Weinstein, you know, Harvey's like only sibling, his brother, his longtime business partner. They ran two companies together for decades during the time that Weinstein was engaged in this alleged predation. You know, what did Bob know? When did he know it? And what did he try to do about it? And for so long, you know, I would call him and he would basically like 
bark at me and hang up. And finally, last year, he agreed to start to, to a meeting, based to a to a lunch at a diner here in Manhattan, and slowly but surely started to. Uh, open up about what he saw and what he knew and what he tried to do about it. And it was clear that he did know about allegations of sexual misconduct going back to the 90s. In fact, in a couple cases, he had provided money that was used to silence a couple of the women who had come forward. Now, he says that like so many people in Weinstein's orbit, that he believed his brother when he said that this was, uh, that these were just shakedowns and it was all these were all extramarital affairs and nothing more. But we also realized that he was, part of his kind of rationale was rooted in his own battles with and recovery from substance abuse, that he chose to view his brother's mm. problem as sex addiction. So even in this letter that he provided to us, that he wrote in 2015, two years before all of the truth really emerged into the public, he's writing this pleading, intimate letter asking his brother to get treatment for sex addiction. And we published that We published that in its entirety yeah. in the book, one of many original records that we just reproduce in its entirety in the book so that readers can see for themselves and contemplate the question of, like, how, do, how is it that people, what, what do people do when they get a glimpse of wrongdoing? How do they try to intervene? And how do they become complicit in abuse? Mm-hmm. What I love about the fact that you have the book now is that as a reporter, when you're telling these stories, you talk about the people coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, as a reporter, you can't always, there isn't always going to be the next article to include that story. But having the book, you now have the opportunity to play this out much farther than what you could have done um, in a print article. You also talk about Me Too and where Me Too has gone. Um, And I wonder what the biggest surprise to you is, especially in the context of Me Too, about the impact, but also where it stands today and what the future holds for the movement. So we wrote the book really to bring you behind the scenes of these events because Me Too has come to mean so much to so many people. It, it's affected all of us in, in every arena. And we wanted to bring you to ground zero with us to be on the phone with um, the very first actresses who began to tell us their Weinstein stories, to be here in the offices of the New York Times during the final confrontation with him. And also we wanted, we didn't want to end with the Weinstein story because in a way it would have been too triumphant. Like, okay, you know, Weinstein has been exposed. That's it. We wanted to reflect the complexity and the controversy of Me Too because that's what so many people are grappling with. So that is what led to our decision to write about Christine Blasey Ford. We're we're sitting here about almost a year to the day since her testimony. And as we saw that happening, Megan and I felt like, wow, this encapsulates everything that has become so important but so complicated um, about Me Too. Right. And there's so much that, and, and I've seen you talk about this in other places as well, there's so much about Me Too that hasn't been decided for lack of a better way of putting it at this point. There's so many open questions about what is the scope of Me Too? What is the appropriate um, uh, punishment for various acts within that scope of Me Too. Right. I mean, we we really, we think that it comes down to three questions, three unanswered, unresolved questions. One is, what is the scope of behavior that's under scrutiny here? Are we talking about just sort of black and white cases of sort of rape or sexual harassment? Or are we talking about, you know, sort of more 
nuanced or complicated uh, interactions like bad dates and the sort of snapping of bras in high school hallways. Uh, secondly, you know, is there a, what is the process by which these uh, complaints are being vetted and evaluated? And thirdly, what does accountability look like? What does punishment look like? Uh, and, and I think that there has not been resolution on those three questions. And so we can't, and I think that, that we obviously wanted to write about all of the complexity and the confusion in these unresolved reforms that I think have made both, both accusers and accused feel like they're, they're not receiving uh, f- you know, adequate fairness and protection. But we also wanted to show you that at least as journalists, the, the standards and got the guidelines that we follow. You know, I had a, uh, you know, I talked about starting my career in, in Wisconsin and I had one of my first editors had a, you know, had a, a, a little sign over his desk that said, you know, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out, which really <laughs> it kind of gets to the heart of what we, what we're, what we're able to show you is that these are, this is how we pursue allegations. And this is the due diligence that we apply as investigative reporting when we are uh, reporting on these these particular types of stories. Not that this would make you any more thorough as reporters, because I know you approach it all from that vantage point. But has this story and the reaction to it changed you in any way? Hear more from Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy after a word from our sponsor. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Has this story and the reaction to it changed you in any way? I think it's been almost an intensification of what we believed for a long time, right? I mean, I, I'm going to take a shot at speaking for both of us, and Megan's going to stop me if, <laughs> if I'm misrepresenting her. <laughs> well, it's a big but I question. Think, but I, I think, it. but I, I think we we have devoted our lives basically to to fact and our version of feminism, which is not like the kind of activist feminism. It's the feminism of putting women's stories into the paper, right? And of just making sure that these voices are represented, that these secrets that need to be exposed are exposed of holding powerful men who who mistreat women in one way or another to account. And so, and we've both done stories in the past that have gotten strong reactions and created change, but nothing, nothing, nothing like this before. It was absolutely staggering. And so I think that it felt in many ways like an affirmation of work that we've been doing for a long time. But also, to be honest, it, the opposite as well, which is a demonstration of its limits. Because mm. what's happened um, ever since October 2017 is that Megan and I have been deluged 
with tips. I mean, deluge. Like think of every platform, you know, our phones, um, our email inboxes, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, women contacting us saying something bad happened, tell my story. Now, the Times devoted a lot of resources and continues to to telling these stories. The team expanded. We did additional stories. But no publication on earth could possibly report out all these stories. There's an ocean of pain. There's a backlog of unresolved incidents out there that's completely overwhelming. And so it's made us also realize the limits of journalism. I mean, this was a case where journalism stepped in where every other system failed, but journalism is not a substitute for a functioning system. Such a good point. And I would also imagine that in in, in weird ways, you almost play a therapist to many of these women. I mean, just the idea, I walked in this room to be completely candid with all of you listeners with my own story. It wasn't on the level of anything that you've reported at this point, but I would imagine that every woman you speak to in some way shares something about her life experience now with you. Yeah. And listen, I think that there's also, that, that there's no question that people, um, you'd just be staggered by the number. I mean, maybe your listeners wouldn't actually. I think at this point, I guess one of the one of the headlines from the last two years is that is that so many people. It's rare to find somebody who does not have a story, a Me Too story. But you know, to to kind of go back to the the last question of of sort of what this has meant emotionally, I think that, and I think that this is something that kind of came out in the course of reporting our book is that on the one hand, what we saw in the Weinstein story was it really ended up being an x-ray into abuse of power more broadly. And I think that for the, that, that for those people who have sort of a cynical inclination, a lot of that sort of cynicism is, is you know, it plays out in the Weinstein story in all of the enablers and the failures of the system and a lot of the other kind of systemic failures that allowed Weinstein to engage in this type of, you know, predatory, alleged predatory behavior for so long. But on the other hand, there's also like it is countered by like the hope that comes with that you can see in the course of this story and like what how brave individuals, brave sources, brave women like coming together and, you know, working with like an institution like the New York Times or so many of the other uh, journalists out there in the country today doing this type of work that can make a difference. And then in the end, at a time when like the truth itself can seem so fractured in this country that like you can unearth the facts and publish them and make a difference. Mm -hmm. During the course of the reporting, I think you spoke with Gloria Allred and Later, you learned Allred's firm had executed a settlement that silenced a woman who had been allegedly sexually assaulted by Weinstein. What did you think when you discovered that? Well, you know, Gloria Allred has been, I mean, she calls herself the most famous woman, woman, woman attorney in the the country. country. And she is famous. I mean, she has been, uh, you know, she has just been one of the most visible women's rights advocates, lawyers in the country and involved in so many of the extremely high profile cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so it was pretty shocking when we realized that she had been involved in that her law firm had been involved in a in a secret settlement that had silenced one of Weinstein's accusers in 2004. So we're talking about, you know, 13 years before 
uh, you know, this investigation and, uh, you know, and during, and in that time, Weinstein had gone on to allegedly hurt more women. And so while we were, while on the one hand that was surprising, it also became, she and that settlement became just one of the kind of windows into the larger issue in question of these secret settlements, which had been used by Weinstein and other powerful men across the country in all different industries to silence women who come forward with allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault against them. And these these secret settlements that we explore in the course of the reporting of our book, you know, they come with like um, these jaw-dropping restrictive clauses. Mm-hmm. Women can't tell their husbands, they can't tell their colleagues, they can't warn other women in the workplace. If they're going to, if they want to talk about it with a therapist, the therapist has to sign a confidentiality clause. So we really wanted to pull the curtain back on these secret settlements and raise some serious questions about whether or not they pose broader dangers to other people by allowing these predators to to cover their tracks. And we also did want to raise the questions. We thought that, that and I think other people have been surprised to learn that people like lawyers like Gloria Allred have been, have been so actively involved in them. If you could wave a magic wand right now and do away or make one change to the system that would at least keep from enabling these behaviors to some maybe small degree. Is there anything that you can imagine right now that you would do? We so can't do that. <laughs> Even if we had the magic wand, it would be unethical. We could be fired mm-hmm. for, for, for using it. I think the only ma- opinion. Yeah, exactly. Or or trying to or this problem is not ours to solve. It's ours to expose. Mm-hmm. You can't solve a problem you can't see. And what we can contribute is getting other people to see it as clearly as possible. But this has got to be solved through public debate, through policy, through the legal system kicking into gear, you know, all of the usual channels. So I guess, I mean, if, if we did have a magic wand, it would be um, to make people aware of, of exactly the kind of thing that Megan was just talking about. I mean, it's, it's actually shocking that we've got a sort of secret system in this country for muting women's sexual harassment and assault claims. And all we can do is make people aware of it and say, hey, is this the system we we all really want? Are there any interesting technologies or solutions that you've seen in your reporting? I, For example, I'm going to throw something out there, and maybe you guys have heard of this, but a, a major technology company was trying to develop something where people could come forward anonymously, and if the anonymous complaints hit a certain mm-hmm. threshold, right. then there would be an investigation. Whether or not that investigation would turn out any kind of result, unknown, but at least keeping people uh, safe from the initial potential blowback of coming forward. I think those efforts are really interesting. I reported on some of them in the spring of 2018, and it they're a little untested now. I think they're going to need a little time to develop, but I think I think it's working on a really important problem, which is that even, you know, two years into Me Too, it's really hard to report yeah. these incidents, and nobody solved that. Okay, um, let's go back to the professional <laughs> conversation. Um, Jody, what's been the biggest challenge for you in your career to date? Whoa. You, 
You know, I've loved every single day in journalism, even the worst days. I dropped out of law school to become a journalist, and within about a week of starting as an assistant at Slate Magazine, this was back in the late 90s when Microsoft still owned it. I never looked back. I felt like I had found my people. I can't imagine anything better than getting to talk to strangers for a day than getting to kind of understand human experience and report it to other people. I think the biggest challenge right now, especially for investigative reporters, is are you working on the right story? Mm-hmm. And that's because these seats are so precious. I mean, journalism is under fire, and we have this responsibility of having these seats at the times and being able to use them for some sort of good. But, like, I mean, you could do 500 investigative stories walking down the street in New York. Yes. I mean, our, our – our world is filled with problems. And also that's people's presumption at this point, right? I mean, nobody thinks that we live in a world where the system is fair. So I think that I remember really obsessing on this in the week, in the months before we started the Weinstein investigation. I just felt like, what can I do that is actually going to matter right now? I hear you on that. I, I worked on a Theranos investigation with Taylor and Lane who are here with us. And, um, for a long time, there was smoke, but people weren't quite sure. And even people that we worked with who were focused on other things at the time were, you know, a little disinterested, to be completely honest. And when you're doing an investigation before it actually is the the thing and it's out there, you really aren't sure how it's going to hit, where it's going to land. Um, Jody, your point about dropping out of law school – What did friends and family say to you when you chose to drop out of law school? Oh, I mean, my parents were beyond horrified. Um, I did have some really supportive friends, though, especially uh, Frank Four, uh, Franklin Four is his byline, who's now at The Atlantic, was one of my best friends from college. Um, My then boyfriend, now husband, Ron Lieber, who's the personal finance columnist at The Times, both of them... um, both of them understood what I was doing and why I was doing it. And that vote of confidence meant a lot. Did you second guess it at any point? No, no, absolutely not. But I'll tell you what has happened, which is that, you know, our stories are constantly returning us to the law, whether it's <laughs> whether it's this, you know, sexual harassment laws in this country are just incredibly weak. They are shockingly weak. Freelancers are not covered. Businesses with... Uh, fewer than 15 people, uh, those employees are not covered. So whether it's that or looking at the upcoming Weinstein criminal trial, we're, uh, the law is in a lot of ways what this ultimately is about because it's our arbiter of right and wrong, and yet it has in many ways abdicated its role here. And so I do feel that I both dropped out of law school and in some sense never left. I love that. Okay, Megan, biggest challenge. Um, I would say so. I've, I, you know, I've done journalism since I didn't study journalism in college. Uh, I took one journalism class uh, as an undergraduate, and uh, I actually didn't 
if I recall correctly, didn't even do that well in it. I think I got a D on my first assignment. So <laughs> this is like, yeah. Do you remember lesson. what the first assignment was? It was just a straightforward news story. I, it was just, it was, it was like, I think I got wrong. Like, I think I, you know, I screwed up my lead in some way. <laughs> I, looking back, I. You buried I, the lead. Yeah, exactly. I buried, I, yeah, exactly. And in, in sort of the quintessential yeah, journalism phrase, I buried, buried the lead. But this is all to say that, you know, I, I but I did go into, I, once I, once I started working in journalism after college, like I immediately got the bug and was just, I, I was, I was hooked. It felt natural. It felt like it was just tapping into, you know, Jody talked about kind of curiosity. I think if you're a curious person, yeah. there's no substitute for this work and being able to pick up the phone or knock on doors and ask strangers about, you know, the, about their lives and the work that they're doing and figuring out all these different systems, whether it's criminal justice or you name it, you can, you can just, it's like a ticket to all these different parts of the, the world and the, the way that the world works. But I mean, I certainly had challenges along the way. I, when I was about 22 or 23, I decided that I wanted to work as a journalist overseas. And so I applied to, I wasn't experienced enough to get a job as a foreign correspondent for a major newspaper, American newspaper. So I applied to English language newspapers around the world. I wasn't destination specific. I was basically 22 and extremely cocky and thought I could do anything, go anywhere and, and somehow pull Which it off. Which is a good thing at 22. Which is a good thing at 22. But this was really the first time where I got totally knocked on my ass. I got hired by the Moscow Times, the English language newspaper in Russia, which never hired people who didn't speak Russian. I didn't speak a word of Russian. They basically decided to, um, to, to, to make an exception for me. And I was like, well, I'll figure it out. I'll learn Russian on the fly. <laughs> they, they didn't have translators. And it was my first daily newspaper assignment. So not only – so I show up to work my first day having done like three, three weeks of – of crash, uh, crash course on, um, uh, rush, you know, like crash course in Russian, but I, I still couldn't really speak a word of it. And so I showed up from my first day and I was told to, to, to do a story by the day's end. Um, and it was, I still not quite sure how I pulled that story off. And about six months later, I could, you know, I, I, I will confess that I left Russia between my tail, <laughs> with my tail between my legs. Um, I was convinced by that point that I wanted to be, you know, I was then I was like, okay, I really want to be a journalist and I really want to be actually a daily newspaper reporter. But I think I got to figure out a, a more conducive environment in which to do it. But the story, did it have anything to do with caviar? <laughs> no, it was actually, it was like Putin was meeting with the secretary general. I, so the editor was like, okay, all right, Megan, here's your desk. Here's your phone. Putin's going to be meeting with the secretary general of NATO today. There's discussions about whether Russia will become a member of, you know, wants to become a member. And like, can you just do a curtain raiser piece, kind of analysis piece on this? And I was like, okay, I'll get that to you by the end of the day. And I still don't know how I, I still don't know how I pulled that story off. I did it, but it was like, it was, it was pretty crazy. I should, I just want to add that fast forward to 2016, 2017, Megan was doing like hard hitting stories about yes. Trump's business dealings in Russia. So I do feel that that reporting experience sort of paid off for you in, <laughs> yeah. in some what's, unexpected what's, what's, way. Talk about circling, talk about, <laughs> talk about circling back. Yeah, right. Like circling back to the law. And there was a moment where I was like, and here I am back in the world of Russia um, when we were doing the coverage of, yeah, when, when in 2016 with Trump and Russia for sure. I know that you'll continue to dig into the Harvey Weinstein storyline and, and others around it. Have you talked about pursuing another major challenge together? Another is, is do you have your eye on another new 
big story to work together on. Sure. I mean, we talk about it all the time. I think the question is, what can we do that will have the biggest impact and that will contribute the most, especially right now with, you know, Me Too, I think, has become more durable and in some ways self-correcting than anyone could have predicted. I mean, look at look at the Jeffrey Epstein story and how much is still unresolved about that. As we sit here talking right now, I think it's shown us that there are just still more abuses to be reported on than we can possibly imagine. But I think that there are also questions about how to do that in a really meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And one thing we feel pretty strongly about is that it's not just about exposing individual predators. This is an entire system, and it's our job to show people that. This didn't happen by accident. This is a set, this is a set of laws and instruments and essentially collective decisions or failure to make decisions by society that has led us to that point. And so I, I think – so what we talk about is is how do we best expose that – and how do we use the tools of journalism, not just investigation, but also fairness and nuance and really listening to people to try to drive the discussion to the most constructive possible place we can? Speaking of the system, that's something that's really present in the book. You de- deconstruct the entire system around the Weinstein Company, the accountants. You look at what Gwyneth Paltrow did for the investigation, and there's a lot of um, new there as well. Um, before we go, I ask everybody the worst advice they ever received. <laughs> so what is the worst advice that you've received along the way? So when I was in my 20s and working at one of my first newspaper jobs, um, not in Russia when I, when I made it back to the United States, I remember, and I, at this point I was working, I was covering really, you know, I was covering like county officials and town administrators. I mean, these were in some ways small fish, but um, I still took the job very seriously and I showed up every day to work and I was tough and I was aggressive on the phone and my, with my questioning. And, uh, and I remember I had an editor, I had an editor at that point in time who would hear me on the phone in my interviews and said to me at one point, pulled me aside and said, Megan, I think you're being a little too aggressive on the phone. An editor. An editor said that to me. And what did I was, say? When I was, kind of, when I was a cub reporter. And, and I, 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 I just sort of smiled and nodded and promptly ignored it. And I would say, you know, certainly in the case of our interviews with Weinstein and Trump and, you know, in, in, in the years since then, I feel like I'm, I'm really glad that I have clung to that, you know, so, some of the aggressive uh, interviewing and toughness. And uh, I, I would encourage if there's any sort of especially young women out there listening and you have a male boss who tells you to be to not be you know to to stop being aggressive uh, i would i would encourage them to to also ignore it as a journalist especially. as a journalist I mean, as a, a journalist break. what are you doing exactly. if you're not being aggressive exactly. yeah. jody it's so great that you ask people that first of all because <laughs> i think part i think part of the secret to success actually is ignoring all the bad advice out there. And as Megan was talking, I was both listening to you, Megan, and just think like I was making a list because, man, I've gotten a lot of really bad advice over the years. But I think the, the, the one that I'm going to mention that's relevant to this story in this book is that there, I want to say that I've gotten almost nothing but support from the times in the 14 years that I've been here. It has been an overwhelmingly, this place grew me 
shaped me, picked me up when I fell, um, gave me useful feedback, gave me opportunities I never could have dreamed of. But there was an editor, very well-meaning editor, a woman who at one point earlier in my career, this was when I was start, I was starting to do these investigative stories that were gender focused, and she told me that she was worried that gender was a backwater, and that covering women's anything was was going to sideline me, and I already knew that that wasn't true. Number one, I had just covered the 2008 election and I saw the kind of like volcanic effect that Hillary Clinton's run had on the gender discussion in this country. It really started a million conversations. Um, I also was beginning to understand something that I think came to true fruition with the Weinstein story, which is that gender certainly been a topic in our work, but I think for both of us, it's been also a kind of investigative tool which is to say that if you understand the women's experiences anywhere, I mean, for me, it's been within Amazon as a company, within Starbucks as a company, then you understand how power works in that company. But so I, I disagreed with her from the start, and I knew that she meant it well, but it, it was a, a splash of cold water because it was one of those moments where you say, oh, so this is what people really think. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is what she thinks of this. Like, okay, like I'm going to, that hurts. You know, I'm going to, I'm just going to have to deal with that if I want to do this work. So a certain number of people are just going to think that. Well, I'm really glad you kept working at it. Jody Cantor, Megan Tuohy, thanks so much for joining us on No Limits. The book is called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. And I am 100% certain that we will be seeing more newsmaking work from both of you. Thank you for what you've done and thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it is the end of the interview and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Molly Dewey. She's the co-founder of Metacool, which offers coaching services and programs for women to address challenges throughout different career stages. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, my name is Molly Winding Dewey, and I am co-CEO and one of the founders of Metacool, which is a coaching and female talent development company. We provide programming for large organizations to really help retain, advance, and attract their really valuable women employees. Uh, So I would say that uh, One of our biggest struggles in starting this company has been a recent one in really trying to figure out what our investment plan is going to look like so that we can really grow the way that we want to. So I'll say that it is, it's kind of an ongoing challenge, but, uh, but it's been fun and one that makes us really use a growth mindset, which we actually teach in our programs. So we have to be really open to the challenge and open to learning new things. Congratulations, Molly, wishing you and all of your clients continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Molly and how she created her company. Plus, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send those nominations to me at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Before we go, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each and every week. 
my producer Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn. Thanks also to ABC Radio, and I hope all of you will come back and join us again next week.